from ABC News. This is the 2021 Year in Review. Join us as we look back at some of the top stories as they were originally reported. Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. Welcome to you. Hopefully you're getting some relaxing time right about now. This hour, we're going to take you on a journey with some of our best reporting as we celebrated different holidays in 2021. On Labor Day, we honored those workers around America from longtime truckers to cybersecurity experts keeping our data safe. We also brought you the story of a social media influencer who's using her platform to try to help fix some broken people, including herself. Here's my friend, ABC's Jason Nathanson. Welcome to Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. It's about as far away as you can get from the world of dance videos and car reviews on social media, one of the most dangerous and destitute places in the country, where an already devastated homeless population has been further marginalized because of the pandemic. And it's here where Shirley Rains puts the power of her social media following to work. We come out as a team every Saturday and feed over 500 people, about 500 people. And then I come out on Tuesdays on my own and feed another couple hundred from my car. And then sometimes I come on either a Wednesday or Thursday, so two to three times a week. Wow. And yeah. Where do you get all the food from? We are fully funded by our social media followers, Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok, you know, Twitter. For blocks and blocks, there are people living in tents or makeshift sidewalk structures, many deep in the throes of unchecked mental illness, drug abuse, or extreme poverty. But on this drizzly summer Saturday, Reigns is out here showing them that they're not forgotten, passing out food, toiletries, flip-flops, tents if she has them. Thank you guys for waiting. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for waiting. You want a wig, queen? and also offering hair washing, styling, color, braids, whatever her volunteers can provide. The beauty services are very important. That's pretty much how we started. Um, of course, food and stuff is necessities, but beauty is uh, more of a want sometimes versus a need, and they have a right to want to have their wants met. Rigo is one of those with wants. Uh, just a regular cut. He's a full head of thick black and silver hair, and he tells me he's needed a haircut for about six months. It's going to make me feel more like a person when I clean up myself. Cutting Rigo's hair this morning is Jamal, a professional barber who linked up with Reigns thanks to social media. I've been following her for a few years, and I reached out and I said, hey, is there anywhere that I could provide my services? He's been coming out every Saturday he can for the past few months, and Rigo is grateful to be sitting in Jamal's chair. We're hurting so bad, man, in the streets, uh, and I really love these people, man, that is treating me like a person. I really, uh, this is a blessing to my life, man, to have you guys over here and helping me out. I lost everything in the COVID, man. My wife, my kids, it hurts. You honestly never know what people are going through, and if it were me, I would want somebody to be able to help me as well. So I want to do what I can to be sure these people out here are taken care of. Can't help everybody, but you got to start somewhere. And that's just what Shirley Rains has done with Beauty to the Streets, a nonprofit she runs full-time now after spending 26 years as a medical biller. She has a large social media presence, her biggest numbers on TikTok, with around 3 million followers. Okay, so I took you on a Sam's Club with me today. Last time I left... Social media um, sponsors all of this. I mean, without social media, we wouldn't be here, you know? Um, they're the ones that we, we get donations from. You know, if we are short on water, I'm having a hard time because there's no tents or sleeping bags or blankets. If I take to social media... All of a sudden, you know, they're sharing and sharing and sharing. And then we've got some people who have large platforms sharing. And all of a sudden, we have the things that we were missing. Why you? 
why did you why do you take this on and you feel like it's your need to do this to help out uh, because I can because I'm good at it and I can not everybody does that uh, not everybody's broken like I'm broken. Not everybody needs the help that, you know, that I once needed and wasn't able to get. Can I ask when you say that you're broken, what do you, what does that mean for you? Um, you know, I lost my son uh, many years ago. Um, I suffer from panic and anxiety disorder, PTSD, you know, um, survivor's remorse. I lost his father years after that. I, I, I consider myself broken because a huge part of me is gone. Like, I didn't know how to cope with that. I never went to therapy. Um, I kind of became this person that nobody wanted to talk to, nobody wanted to deal with. I had problems. People thought I was mean and evil. And it just kind of resembles the character that people place on the homeless. Like, I'm like, they look like and act like I used to act when I was going through a lot of stuff. This is the new Shirley. And I have to adapt to it. Just like she adapted when she lost her full-time job and decided to go full-time with Beauty to the Streets, though it hasn't been easy. I have no medical. I have no dental. I feel like I'm damn near in poverty myself. I don't make, just barely covers the bills. I don't get what I used to get when I was a medical biller, but I'm happier than I was when I was a medical biller. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, I'm way happier. Like, now I can make sense of my life and my pain. Another way Reigns makes sense of her pain is through bold color. Her eyelids this morning painted a dazzling green and yellow. Her hair always something bright. She says that makes her feel good, snaps her out of her funk, as do her clothes. Today, it's a Wonder Woman t-shirt. It's a black Wonder Woman shirt. I feel like representation matters. So when I come out here, I'm always wearing like either MLK or Malcolm X or Harriet Tubman or like shirts that say 100 inventions created by black people or something powerful because I think a lot of times living on the streets or being in a humble situation depletes people's power sometimes. And I think we have to just remind them how, how strong our roots and our soil are that we come from as a people. Do you feel like Wonder Woman? Hell no. Hell no. If I had Wonder Woman powers, I would take that last of the truth, and I would have already knew my baby daddy wasn't no good before I had them kids, boo. Hell no. I would use that last of the truth on three baby daddies, okay? The man that I love that didn't love me back. I mean, Wonder Woman had a great body, okay? She had an invisible jet. Let's be real. Wonder Woman was popping. You know what I'm saying? No. Definitely not Wonder Woman, okay? Out here to a lot of these people, I think you are Wonder Woman. I don't think I am. You know, if I do something that's like a Wonder Woman, yeah, I want Wonder Woman credit. But feeding people and doing hair and all these things are just, it's a humane thing to do. I don't, I'm not doing anything extra fabulous. You know, we're not doing anything like out of outstanding or out of this world. We're literally feeding people who are hungry. We're giving somebody something to drink when they're thirsty. We're cutting people hair who need a haircut. It's what you're supposed to do. People doing what they're supposed to do. That, I think, is the common thread running between those I've talked to who have found a way to turn social media into a job that can sustain them. The teen dancer, the car salesman from Texas, the former medical biller trying to fix her broken self and others at the same time. They're all people doing what they feel they're supposed to do. They didn't start by saying, I'm going to be a star. They started by wanting to share their passion with the world. And people followed. Jason Athenson, ABC News. Los Angeles. On Memorial Day, we honored sacrifices made mainly abroad. In a year when too often the battlefield seemed to come home, we take you to what the country considers sacred ground. Arlington National Cemetery, where two-foot gravestones cover acres and acres. My colleague Aaron Katursky has a story of how one mother continues to honor her son 
15 years after his death. People visit Arlington National Cemetery to pay respects, to contemplate the cost of war, to understand history. You can go to Kennedy's grave and the Tomb of the Unknown. They're all sort of in the same vicinity. We're here with my ABC News colleague, James Meek. The tourists go to see the changing of the guard. But the rest of the cemetery is pretty quiet, with the exception of Section 60. Section 60 is where the dead from the United States wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are buried. 17 years ago, this was an empty field. It's got to be at least 100 rows of tombstones. Headstones. If the cemetery was just this, it would be a lot. And the thing about this section is, this is not people who died of old age. These are people who fell in battle. I know at one time they called this cemetery the living cemetery because so many young people here and the wars were still ongoing so you still had casualties, people being buried here so it was called the living cemetery because so many people were here visiting. Paula Davis still comes every Sunday as she has for nearly the last 15 years since her only son Justin Davis was killed. Coming up on 15 years you say, wow, you know, who who still remembers other than family and close family and friends. As in all of Arlington, each headstone in Section 60 tells a story. Private First Class Justin Davis was a 19-year-old infantryman when he was killed in Afghanistan June 25, 2006. It's comforting for me to come here and just sit and, you know, it helps keep life in perspective for me. This is my Arlington bag, and this bag was his... um, bag in school, in high school. (laughs) Can you believe it? Held up? Of course, I've done some stitching on it, but... (laughs) You've got all sorts of supplies in there. It's my Arlington bag. It's got scissors, it's got pictures, it's got tape. Each week, Paula tidies her son's headstone. She makes sure there's a laminated photo of him and flowers. Yeah, this is my little routine. Trim the grass. Trim the grass. Clean the picture off. And like I said, I do it for me. I just, you know, this is my way of remembering him and honoring him. And he didn't even like flowers. (laughs) So they stink. (laughs) She'll pause every now and again to look at her son's picture. Oh, it's just like, that's how I remember him. So serious, but knowing he's nothing but a big teddy bear. I said, why do you guys always look so mean when you take your pictures? He said, Mom, you can't be cheesing for the enemy. Had he lived, Justin would be in his mid-30s now, but Paula still remembers him as a 19-year-old, eager to leave the Maryland town where he grew up and join the Army. I haven't seen him in 15 years. I haven't got a big bear hug, big magnetic smile. I haven't seen that, haven't gotten a hug, haven't heard that baritone voice. He wanted to be an infantryman. I said, why would you do that? You're my only kid. You know, he could not be deterred, and I tried. <laughs> I tried. So in the end, I, you know, I supported him. And, um, you know, he had no regrets once he got in. He had no regrets. It's been almost 15 years. Do you still remember the knock at the door? I didn't get a knock at the door. In June 2006, Paula Davis was on a business trip in Wyoming when a relative called saying someone from the Army wanted to speak with her. A casualty assistance officer found her in a hotel lobby. I was sitting there, and I remember uh, this guy in his class A's coming into the hotel lobby. And I went, I jumped up, and I ran to him, and I said, I'm Paula Davis. I'm Justin Davis's mother. And he said, Miss Davis, the United States 
I don't know if he said military or army. It's sorry. And it just became, no, no. Justin Davis died fighting with the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan's Korangal Valley, known as the Valley of Death, because four dozen U.S. service members had been killed there before the U.S. pulled out in 2010. You think back of what I could have done maybe to stop him or deter him. You know, I supported him. I didn't like it, but I supported him. And now this is your life. And now this is my life, and I don't like it. But I learned how to deal with it, come to terms with it. You know, people say, oh, you go to the cemetery, you got to move on. And I said, well, I'm not, I have moved forward. It's not that, you know, I'm not here wallowing on the ground. For me, it just helps me to deal with my reality. Coming here is better therapy. For me. For you. Yes. You know, I did the grief counseling. I did the uh, therapist. I did the psychiatrist. Coming here, for me, it's just everything. It helps me keep things in perspective. And I think it helps ground me in reality. And it helps me to come here and meditate and and reflect this is this is my life now. Do you ever think you'll stop coming here? It's hard to say. You know, I, at one point I said, I can't imagine me ever stopping. But I don't know because in the beginning, I was here twice a week when it, when he was buried here. And it, oh, probably for, you know, for I don't know how long I would, you know, after I went back to work, I still was here on weekends. That went on for a while. And now I go, sometimes I, I go two weeks just because other stuff, life has happened that I can't get here every week. And in the beginning, it bothered me. He's going to be forgotten. I can't even, you know, get to go there and make sure his grave is looks nice, you know. And then now it's, you know, it's like, okay, it's okay. Does it get easier? I'm sure you've run into families who are coming here for the first time. Or... Yeah. I don't know if easier is the word. I think you you come to terms with it. You're not in shock anymore. You're not uh, grieving as intensely as you were in the very beginning. That has kind of smoothed out, but you, you, it's, it's still hard. And so she comes with her scissors and her flowers and camp chair, shoes off in the sun to visit with her boy and to warmly greet other parents she has come to know well. You got these people that you see <laughs> all, you know, when I'm here, he's here, or, you know, special days, he's there. We don't plan to meet up, but we always do. <laughs> You've heard of Band of Brothers. Paula Davis said she's part of a band of mothers. Oh, my goodness gracious. So is Janice Chance. Every day for a gold star mother is a day. It's a memorial day. A few rows away from Justin Davis is Janice Chance's son, Jesse Melton. When they came to, came to my house, I would never forget I didn't want to see them, but I said, you know, I was kind of expecting you. I didn't want to see you. Um, just tell me my son's only been wounded and not killed. And they said, ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you, your son's been killed. And I said, you know, what can I say? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From that point on, I was looking. I said, I'm going to make sure Jesse is honored and not remembered. 
Marine Corps Captain Jesse Melton III was 29 when he died in Afghanistan September 9, 2008. He was returning from a combat mission with another Marine, a Navy corpsman, and an Afghan interpreter when they were killed by an enemy bomb. The rest of them were dead immediately. Jesse was alive. He was on fire. They had to put the fire out. He was still alert enough to say, oh my goodness, I'm dying. Captain Melton! Captain Jesse Melton III! His mom posted video online of Captain Melton's final roll call. To Arlington, she brings a poster-sized photo of her son and recollections of the dreams she has about him. Jesse came home and I said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be dead. And he said, who told you that? He said, I am not dead. And, and someone said, we need help. Somebody had asked, we need help. We, can, can your son help us? And I said, no. And I grabbed a hold of him and I wouldn't let him go. Oh. I would not let him go. What does it mean to you when you come here to this place to visit him? Oh when, I, when I come to visit Jesse, I'm here on hollow grounds. That Jesse is buried here amongst so many other heroes who made sacrifices just like he did. That he's being honored. This is so well kept and it's just like a memorial. I mean, when you look around to all of the, this reminds me, they're heroes, they sacrifice. They made a difference. When you're willing to put your life on the line for other people, it makes me happy that he's among people who did the same thing. Janice Chance told us she is filled with more pride than pain, but both sentiments inhabit the space between Arlington's symmetrical lines of headstones that are dedicated to those who, as Lincoln said, gave the last full measure to preserve, protect, and defend the American democracy. Coming up, a new gold rush in an industry that was illegal 20 years ago. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The picture of the 2024 race is becoming clearer, and it's looking like a rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. It's an election with few comparisons, both a current and former president running. So how should we make sense of this unique election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the 2021 Year in Review from ABC News. Join us as we look back at some of the top stories as they were originally reported. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. 
Welcome back. It's pretty rare these days to find a job that literally was against the law only a decade ago. But as more and more states legalize the recreational use of marijuana, employment in the industry is opening up for those interested in growing, cultivating, and selling cannabis. 18 states have legalized recreational pot, and 18 states now have job openings in the industry, including Massachusetts. Here's Sherry Preston. If you drive about two and a half hours north of New York City, or about two and a half hours west of Boston, you'll be in the heart of the Berkshires. This lovely stretch of western Massachusetts is known for its rolling hills, summer farmers markets, Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and the Norman Rockwell Museum. He lived the last 25 years of his life in Stockbridge, a town nestled in the heart of the Berkshire Hills. It was this community he used as a setting again and again for his illustrations of life in America. The Berkshires aren't just known for bucolic settings and peaceful afternoons these days, though. The small towns that make up this area are also becoming known for their cannabis dispensaries. There are several along Route 7 from Sheffield, Massachusetts, stretching up through the town of Great Barrington and into Pittsfield, the county seat of Berkshire County. In 2016, Massachusetts voters approved a bill decriminalizing the recreational use of marijuana, and that's when the dispensary started popping up. Michaela Trathaway is dispensary manager at a large barn-like structure called The Pass. She explained the rules to me when I visited last month. Um, you can get an ounce per day. Everything that you purchase from us has to legally be consumed in a safe and private location within Massachusetts. There's a lot of regulations. You can't take photos really in the facility of people or products or prices. You can't take phone calls in the facility. That's another thing people don't really realize, um, but the cameras might interpret that as you're calling someone and asking them what they would like, and everything that you purchase has to be for you. The pass is what's known as a vertically integrated facility. Michaela also had to explain that to me. So it just means that we manufacture our own products and then we sell them out our door. So a lot of the things that you'll buy in the dispensary are made right out back um, or grown right out back, and then they're processed by our team, and then they're put out for sale and sold by our team. When you're talking about growing, manufacturing, and selling a relatively new product, though, you're also talking about jobs, and this company has provided lots of them. Um, I know we just purchased our third facility. It's going to be a processing and packaging facility. So, yeah, that new facility will start out about adding 30 full-time jobs. And that's in addition to the dozens of well-paying jobs they've already brought to the community. Starting pay at the pass is between $15 and $17 an hour and caps out at about $21 an hour. Chris Weld is founder of Berkshire Wellco, parent company of the pass. He says the industry has changed monumentally, even just over the past 12 months. A year and a bit ago, 30% of the nation was voting in favor of legalizing cannabis, and now it's 60%. And there are very, very few issues that change that quickly. And when you go into our retail shop here, it's not uncommon to have, you know, the four stations taken up by people in their 70s. Weld also owns a small distillery down that same Route 7 and says the decision to open here was a smart one, both for him and, he thinks, the community. The uh, canatourism component of the Berkshires is huge at the moment. But I've read stuff that says for the model is that for every dollar that is spent on cannabis in a community, it's actually bringing in $3 in revenue because people will come up and they'll buy gas and they'll go out and they'll buy a sandwich and they'll, oh, we'll spend the night in a hotel and we want to go to Tanglewood and um, fortunately they go to the distillery down the road or whatever it may be, but the, the traffic and the tourism 
has definitely benefited. And I think when a town looks at the risk cost benefit of allowing a cannabis company come in, that's certainly part of the formula, right? What else is it bringing into our community? And I have to say, uh, every time, knock on wood, I talk to our chief of police and I say, what have you heard about us? He goes, nothing. I said, great. That's perfect. That's what we want. Now, hold on a minute. If you think that opening up a cannabis dispensary in the area that welcomes cannabis dispensaries is easy, these businesses are regulated to the max. The product is highly taxed, and people in the community are watching closely. Alexander Farnsworth is founder of the upscale Farnsworth Fine Cannabis along Main Street in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. His store is much smaller, with wood-paneled walls and the feel of a candy store, almost like if Willy Wonka sold tinctures, edibles, cannabis-infused drinks, and flour, which is the pot itself. They also sell hand-rolled single-fine cannabis cigarettes for $13 a piece and gold and diamond pot-leaf necklaces for $18.95. That's $1,895. What is interesting is, you know, half of our customers come in and say perhaps this is the the nicest store they've ever been into in their lives. Um, And then the other half, you know, who are coming from Tribeca feel right at home because it's certainly a shop that you could find in New York, London, Paris, Tokyo. And I love that it's of that caliber, but located here in Great Barrington in kind of the middle of nowhere Berkshires. Because I think it makes it feel just a bit more special and unexpected. Is your overhead a lot? Are you finding it easier, harder, or the same as you thought it would be when you originally had this idea back in 2012? Well, it's definitely taken much longer than expected. Um, It's certainly more fulfilling than expected. But the hardest part in terms of overhead really is the tax liabilities and the tax restrictions. Farnsworth's great-great-uncle was Philo T. Farnsworth, the inventor of the first all-electric television. The store is lined with his family's antique radio collection. Unlike the past, Farnsworth does not grow its own plants. They bring their product in from nearby grow farms. Um, This Berkshire region is going to become known for its sun-grown outdoor cannabis, and a lot of that will start to hit the shelves in October, November. The cannabis industry has brought jobs to the area, certainly, but it's also brought revenue. Taxes on marijuana products have gone to the local community, and 3% of gross sales at dispensaries goes to the Great Barrington Community Impact Fund. That's been set up to offset any negative ramifications of marijuana use. This year, they're doling out $350,000 to various groups focusing on health and safety education, social engagement, infrastructure, criminal justice, and on enhancing the town's reputation. According to a city press release, quote, as one of the first towns in Massachusetts with dispensaries, Great Barrington has earned substantial attention for the prominence of this business sector. Chris Weld, owner of the past, loves the area and the people, but he knows the more shops that move in and the jobs they create might not be around forever, especially with recreational laws changing in nearby New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I mean, it's a nascent industry. It's still got the gold rush mentality, um, and I think it still has some legs. But that being said, uh, when small towns have four or five dispensaries, you know, they're not going to sell four or five times as much cannabis in that town just because they have more dispensaries. They might sell 1.5 times as much cannabis. So 
it's going to be, there'll be a shakedown, I think, at some point in the industry. For now, though, the Pass, Farnsworth Fine Cannabis, Theory Wellness, Rebel, Calix Berkshire, and several other shops in the area remain in friendly competition for customers as they provide a new kind of job for the region. It wasn't very long ago we all saw the pictures, jets lined up, wingtip to wingtip, sitting idle in the desert and parked on deserted runways from coast to coast. Some striking images of an otherwise mobile nation shut down by a worldwide pandemic. But while most of the flying public had its feet on the ground, reporter E.J. Becker in Kansas City says not far away from those long runways, abandoned jetways and empty terminal buildings, plenty of people were still on the move and flying high. And every one of them has a story. I had a job I didn't particularly enjoy at that moment in time, and I was looking for a way to find something I really loved. A very specific story about how they got started. My husband said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think I'd like to fly an airplane. And his reaction was, well, then go to the airport. So I picked up my car keys, walked out the door, drove to my local general aviation airport and started flying lessons that very same day. And Elizabeth Tennyson has been flying ever since. I am probably one of those weirdos that has known what he's wanted to do his whole life. In fact, I ran into one of these the other day. I had a paper that one of my folks had kept that I'd done in fourth or fifth grade talking about I wanted to be an airline pilot. Chris Kirk got his license not long after he was old enough to take the tests. And once he did, he celebrated the best way a pilot can, by flying with his first passenger. I was 17, just got my license. So I took the plane home and I made a, I made a couple calls. And my only person that was available to go fly with me, because I wanted to, you know, you want to go take somebody flying. I called my grandma. She's like, they're lickety split. And, you know, I will always remember that, that she took the time to, you know, come out and be with her 17-year-old grandson and go flying. I'm going to cry here in a minute. You know, it was just it was just the coolest thing. That first year, most of my students thought I was a pilot. But Gene Poole wasn't. I'd always wanted to fly, just I didn't really have the funds, and if I wasn't going to do it for a living, it's a very expensive hobby. Gene, like Elizabeth and Chris, was fascinated by flying, and all three of them have dedicated some part of their professional and personal lives to sharing that fascination, that love of aviation with others, in hopes of growing the general aviation community and getting more people to fly small airplanes. You know, the ones that buzz overhead on Sunday afternoon when you look up and think, I wonder where they're going. Apparently they're going everywhere. I think one of the things that we've seen in general aviation during the pandemic is a big uptick in people who are looking to use GA for personal transportation, for business transportation, and just for the joy of it. It's a means of getting around that really has no comparison. Elizabeth Tennyson took that seemingly random decision to go to the airport one afternoon and has turned it into a career focused on growing GA. And it's working. To give you an idea, between April of 2020 and February of 2021, there were actually more people flying general aviation aircraft than there was air carrier traffic. Elizabeth helps lead the AOPA Foundation and its You Can Fly program. The AOPA is like AAA for pilots and airplane owners, and the foundation gives out millions of dollars in scholarships to help people learn to fly. There are lots of scholarships out there to help young people learn to fly. I even hear from groups that tell me they have trouble giving away their scholarship money. The overwhelming majority of the AOPA scholarships goes to kids, but that's just the beginning. The AOPA has taken flying 
two kids via STEM education. And that's where Elizabeth's story intersects. What happens is they get in the class and we take them up in the air. With Gene Poole. You know, if you put somebody who hasn't been a pilot up in the air and they can't think of anything else, well, they're probably future pilots. One summer when Gene was at Oshkosh, a massive annual aviation convention, he happened upon an AOPA seminar about its four-year high school curriculum. And Gene got on board faster than a first-class passenger jonesing for champagne and caviar before takeoff. You know, here's a free curriculum, and I thought, I'm a math teacher. If I can get kids interested in what math is used for, which is what they always ask, that's all I wanted to get out of it. Gene's school in suburban Minneapolis is one of 300 across 44 states teaching aviation to kids, almost 10,000 kids every year. The four-year program starts with the history of aviation, and the whole thing is very hands-on. We'll make a hot air balloon out of tissue paper and we'll launch it. They learn about the Wright brothers, the man who inspired them. And by the time they get to year two, they're getting pretty serious. So in the second and third year, it's really essentially ground school for pilot training. And the kids that take advantage of it, let's just say some of them really take off. My first pilot was a young girl. And she got up in a helicopter and she hovered that thing first time, just flying it. And the CFI said she acts like she's been flying this plane for years. Her reaction was just, just like a video game. <laughs> Going up in the air and learning to fly and realizing she could do that gave her confidence I never, you know, I never expected. And, and she's a different person as a result of that. Since he started teaching aviation, three of his kids have soloed. Two are now pilots. Two more are in training right now. And one is doing it on an AOPA scholarship. But Elizabeth Tennyson says the kids aren't the only ones taken off. We have a teacher who has been with us for several years. Three guesses as to who that teacher is. AOPA has 20 teacher scholarships a year. He told me he applied for the scholarship three times before he actually got it. It was during COVID and it was in May on my birthday, actually. <laughs> Chokes me up a little. We were at my house, all my kids were there, my grandkids, and my cell phone went off. And it said, congratulations. It was from the AOPA. And while schools were closed down, I spent the summer learning to fly. His kids in his classes would come out to the airport on weekend mornings and watch him take his lessons and critique his landings. And the students have learned some valuable lessons from their teachers' teachable moments. I had a runway incursion on my first solo. It was interesting. Gene lined up to land on the wrong runway. The FAA frowns upon that. It could have been a really bad thing, but it wasn't. I had to fill out a nine-page report. I was able to share that with my students and say, you know, the, the FAA is not there to hassle you. And so I got to go through that whole process with the kids. And when he went for his check ride, where you fly with an examiner, and if you pass, you become a pilot? Gene didn't pass. Going through that, then I could talk to the students about how you overcome failure. You just go up and do it again. He passed the second time around and does note, with a hint of pride, that his kids who've made it to the checkride all passed their first time out. Once you have that license, Elizabeth Tennyson says the sky's the limit. The ability to fly your own aircraft is really the ability to have freedom. I think that's why so many people are migrating over to general aviation because of the freedom that it offers. Pilot Chris Kirk says the pandemic has highlighted the freedom and flexibility that general aviation offers. Freedom from, you know, having to sit next to somebody who might be sick. It's just the pleasure of going back and forth on your own. Especially when airline schedules have been cut so dramatically. And Chris would know. He flies the 737 for a major airline. When he's not at 37,000 feet, 
He's on the ground at his company, Wild Blue, helping the little guy buy and sell small airplanes. Maybe in the past, they're like, you know, it'd be nice to get my license, and it'd be nice to go out and, and learn how to do that, and maybe I could use it for my business. And then all of a sudden, again, it's kind of that awakening thing where they see that, oh my gosh, you know, I can, I could really do this. So the next time you hear it and you look up and you see that small airplane and wonder, where are they going? They could be headed out to grab a $100 hamburger. It's taking your, your personal airplane out and enjoying, you know, in this case, a meal. They call it a $100 hamburger because you're not just paying for the ground beef. You're paying for the fuel to fly to get there, too. You know, those $100 hamburgers are fun when you're taking somebody that's never done it before. It could be a high school student on a discovery flight as part of their aviation class. Or a newly minted pilot building hours on their way to a job with the airlines. Or maybe they're just out looking for the answer to that age-old question... Why should the birds have all the fun? Either way, they're on the move. And maybe you're next. E.J. Becker, ABC News, Kansas City. It's hard to imagine how frontline healthcare workers in many American cities manage to balance it all. The work of caring for COVID-19 patients with their own day-to-day lives. Many protected their families by making separate homes inside of their own houses. Others weren't certain they'd survive the year. ABC's Andy Field has their stories. Medical professionals learn to tune this out. But this sound is still jarring. That last FaceTime call to a dying COVID patient. Emergency nurse Virginia Shad, wearing full protective gear, held that phone up to critical COVID patients so family and friends could say goodbye. It sounds crazy, it's horrible that it's happening, but it felt like I was doing the only thing that I could do. I'm going to make sure that this phone call happens. Virginia was often the last person COVID patients saw before dying, her own face wrapped inside a sealed protective mask. And I remember being in all my garb, in a room, sweating, trying to turn a patient to, I need to give them Tylenol. And I just remember like breaking down in the room and being like, how are we going to get through this? Nurse Cara Baldini says she handled too many of those end of life calls. The hardest thing was having their families on FaceTime and having to have them say goodbye. That broke me. Most COVID patients did not arrive this way. Virginia Shad says many just walked in and seemed to have the flu. That's when I knew how scary COVID was because they came in talking and were on a ventilator in two hours and they were in the ICU for three weeks and then I found out that they had passed away. Nurse Yuana Sanborn was one of the ER team leaders, making sure staff protected themselves even as they tried to save patients. It was pretty scary. So a lot of these elderly went pretty quick in the first few weeks. They didn't even make it out of the ER. And then there was the ride home and how to protect their own families. Many of us didn't sleep in our homes. I was grateful that I had a basement that I could go to, and that's, it was my bunker, and that's where I stayed for many months. Cara Baldini says she felt helpless at work and home. I'd have to change before I got in the door and go right in the shower, and I was still scared that I was going to spread it to my husband. My younger sister has Down syndrome. I was terrified about bringing any of it to my family, so we didn't see them for a long time. Where did Mommy sleep? Downstairs inside there. Yuana tried explaining to her four-year-old daughter Mia why Mom could not hug or touch her. And why did Mommy sleep down there? You can't be next to me because coronavirus. Do you know how to fight the virus? Do uh, you wash your hands? And you wear a mask. 
Watching so many ventilator patients never recover created a lot of post-traumatic stress. There would be some nights where I would just come home and I would cry and, and I was like, I just, I need a moment. Dr. Eugene Lipoff runs a nonprofit called ErasePTSDNow.org. They help medical professionals cope with COVID stress. Studies say it's affected nearly one in every four hospital workers. I think it's a huge problem, and I think it's going to become more so because we have gone through part of the viral pandemic, but there is a mental pandemic coming right after that. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. For Ioana, Kara, and Virginia, much of that nightmare ended when the first vaccine shipment arrived. I mean, I did not think this was going to happen for years. I saw no end in sight for this. And I was one of the first to start in the vaccination clinic, helping out giving the vaccine. I mean, I would come home with tears of joy every day. Everybody was so grateful and so excited, and they wanted a picture of their vaccine. And such an amazing experience, going from such a low to now such a high. It's about the greater good. It's about protecting the people who have cancer and are immune compromised and cannot get vaccinated. And even with COVID numbers dropping, many frontline nurses aren't sure it's over when they see the surge in other countries. We want to see our family. We want to socialize. We just have to hang in a little bit longer. Do you let your guard down? I don't know. The folks in this emergency room won't. In Bethesda, Maryland, I'm Andy Field, ABC News. The 2021 Year in Review was produced by Leighton Schneider. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News.